Good morning. If we haven't had a chance to meet, my name's Brad. I'm one of the elders here. And I want to again say happy Mother's Day to um, all the moms who are here and all those who have cared for others um, as if they were moms. We want to say happy Mother's Day to you. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel chapter 18. Today we're looking at three chapters, 18, 19, and 20. Um, As you guys know, we're going through a series, we're studying the life of David, this Old Testament character who over and over again, he points us to Jesus. And if you didn't hear last Sunday's sermon, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to the podcast. Um, Last week we looked at that, that story of epic proportion as we looked at the all too familiar story of David and Goliath, and we saw how that story is really not about David, and it's really not about Goliath, but it, we saw how it's really a story. It's about Jesus, and how uh, Jesus is our sword and our protector, and how Jesus is the one who has overcome, and that really sets the framework for all of David's life, as he is going to continually point us as the great King David to the greater and greatest king who would ever come, King Jesus. Today we fast forward through these chapters. We're obviously not going to get to read them all. We're going to look at some sections of them. But we're going to learn about suffering in these, these chapters today. And let me just say, if you think your in-laws are bad, just wait until you meet David's in-laws. And you're going to discover that you've got it pretty good. And so we're going to see that we can learn a lot about suffering from David's life. We're also going to see a friendship in this set of chapters that uh, you'd be lucky if you ever had a friend that was half the friend that Jonathan is. And so there's a lot that we can learn both about suffering and about friendship. But as much as we can learn about both of those, even more powerfully, I think this section of David's story actually teaches us the most about discipleship. It gives us a picture of what it looks like to really place your allegiance fully and completely in someone else's hands. To come under their authority and to truly submit your life. We see that in David and Jonathan's relationship. And they're going to help us to answer this question. Who is my allegiance to? And when I say that, I don't just mean have you prayed a prayer, have you filled out a card, have you walked an aisle, have you been baptized? Yes, salvation comes at a moment in time, but the gospel is not the ABCs of the Christian faith, it's the A to Z. And so the gospel we must believe and walk in every day of our lives, and this relationship is going to help us to really evaluate who is my allegiance to? particularly in times of suffering. Look with me at verse 1. I want to read through verse 5 and set the scene for this section of the story. In verse 1, the writer of 1 Samuel writes, As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the son of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David. And his armor 
and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. We pick back up in this story and at first glance, it seems like nothing could, it seems like everything is just going great. It seems like it couldn't be going better for David. He's killed Goliath. Israel has routed the Philistines. They've run them almost out of the land. And everyone seems to be in love with David. Well, almost everyone. And the writer instantly introduces us to this relationship in chapter 18. He's, he's making it an emphasis as he brings... As soon as Goliath is out of the scene, he instantly brings Jonathan into the scene, seemingly out of nowhere. And the writer introduces us to Jonathan, who's Saul's son, and he makes it really clear that this instant bond has been formed between these two men. Now, oftentimes when we read this story, I think we think that these guys are probably similar ages, and they just really hit it off, you know? Man, we just really hit it off. No. Jonathan is anywhere from 10 to even as far as 27 years older than David. So Jonathan is old enough that he could have been David's father. But there is something, I believe, spiritual that's taking place here that we're going to see as we unpack. And let me just clarify and say, I think there is something spiritual that's taking place and not something sexual. There's a lot of people who have said, oh, this, this bond, this relationship This is something sexual that's taking place. If you look throughout the Old and the New Testament, the writers of each are clear that homosexuality is a sin. And up until this point, it seems like the author of 1 Samuel has had no problem from this point forward sharing all of David's problems and his failures and his sins. But he never once alludes to this relationship as being anything more than an intimate bond and friendship between two men. And that's something that's unusual for us to experience today. I know the times in which I've been to Africa and I have friends who are um, from Africa and my friend from um, Nigeria, uh, he was probably 15 years older than me and, and he would tell me about how in Africa, if you're good friends, he said, if I were with you in Africa, we would walk and we would hold hands together. And, and he did it. <laughs> and I was like, okay, well, we're not in Africa. <laughs> so, and that's how we experience relationship too often times. And I think as men, there's an awful lot that we can learn about opening up, understanding our feelings talked with men recently and good friends and acquaintances here who are leaders of their pastors, leaders of churches here in Memphis, and they're, they're recognized as amazing leaders, but they've come to realize um, just how much they struggle with their feelings, with acknowledging their feelings. You know, one, one guy, um, an acquaintance who shares his testimony that his, his wife would oftentimes say, how are you feeling, how are you doing? And he would report to her all the things he had accomplished that day as they're laying in bed. And she would say, I didn't ask what you did. I asked how you're feeling. And she would take out a feeling chart and she would hand it to him. This is a high-level leader. If I said his name, you'd recognize him like that. 
And she would say, just point. And he would point to what he was feeling. As men, we struggle, and we see in David and Jonathan's relationship, we see this, this intimacy and this, this love. Um, now, some people would say, you know, they're, they're going to fight together in battle, and we see that. Some of our men who have served um, in the military, particularly in times of war, would say, yes, there are comrades that we were, we were one, we were united, we had each other's backs. But there's something even closer that's taking place here. It says, Jonathan loved David as himself. They were one in spirit, literally knitted together. And in verse 2, David essentially becomes part of Saul's family. Now, this gets really interesting in this story. And I just want to unpack these three chapters for you and lay David's life out and Jonathan's life and let you see the kind of relationship that was formed. And what I want you to see is a stark contrast between Saul and Jonathan. Because at the end of the message, there's going to be the question, which is, who are you? Are you Saul or are you Jonathan? And in this relationship, David, he is getting drawn in to this unhealthy family. Um, he's now not just simply a member of the court, but remember, Saul has promised that whoever defeats this giant is going to receive his daughter in marriage. Uh-oh. And so we pick up in verse 5. David is seemingly successful in everything he does. He's loved by all the people, even by the servants. But there's one that he is not loved by. He's not loved by Saul. Have you ever had a moment in your life when it seemed like things couldn't get any better? Like it seems like you're on top of the world only for everything to seemingly fall apart? As you look back over your life, have you ever experienced times like that? I remember um, Matt telling me about the time where, I think I remember the story right, he gets back from his honeymoon and goes back to his job only to find out on the first day back that his company has downsized and laid him off. And they were like, well, we didn't want to ruin your honeymoon. He's like, well, thanks for ruining my marriage, you know. <laughs> I mean, that's what it felt like at the time. Like, we all experience times where it seems like, man, things couldn't get better. And then the bottom just drops out. It would do us well to realize that life is always changing. And let me say this. If you struggle with anxiety, and if you struggle with control, if you struggle with fear, and we all do, but at different levels, this is going to sound backwards, but it would do you well to remember that life is always changing. There is nothing certain about this life outside of God. No matter how hard we work to try to control life, it never works. Chuck Swindoll writes, God never changes, but we certainly do. The places we live change, people change, even friends change. Jobs change. Or how about your home? Things change there too. Children are conceived unexpectedly. 
Many parents are brokenhearted because their older children are not walking with God. Others are sorrowing because death has taken a parent or a son or a daughter. Our health changes. Or, or how about tests in life? Just think of what's happened in the past five years. Aren't you glad God didn't tell you about all those things five years ago? Aren't you glad he didn't give you your life ahead of time on credit? Instead, he just, we just take one, life one day at a time. That's the way he dispenses life. Because he never changes. And he knows what will work together for good. You and I don't. We sort of ricochet from one moment to the next. Trying to put together what life is all about. And that's what David is experiencing right now in his story. He is in that portion where life, he is just ricocheting. He's bouncing from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. And many people think, man, David struggled. If you read through 1 Samuel, you'll say, man, that was kind of a tough time he was in there for a few months. It was several years. Several years while he was waiting to be king. Several years of str struggling and suffering that he will face. And I want to look at his experience for just a few minutes this morning. I think the easiest way to summarize it is just to look at the number of times that King Saul makes an attempt on his life. Look at verses 6 through 9 with me. As they were coming home when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands. And to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom. And Saul eyed David from that day on. It's tough. I think uh, probably the contemporary cultural theologian Taylor Swift summed it up best when she said, haters gonna hate. Saul is angry. And his anger leads, we're gonna see, to attempted murder. Anger turns to jealousy, finally attempted murder, and Saul is overcome with an evil spirit. And so much so that if you continue reading through the story, you're gonna see that he attempts to pin David to the wall with his sword as he tosses it. And in the midst of this, we see David eludes him because the Spirit of the Lord is upon David and, and Saul becomes fearful. And then we see the second attempt on David's life. And it's a little less obvious. It's a little less obvious than picking up a spear and slinging it at him. Saul says, I'll kill him with my daughter. <laughs> so Saul comes up with this plan and he says, Hey, David, if you will fight, if you will lead our army in fighting the Philistines, if, if you will fight out there on the front lines, then I will give you my eldest daughter. And Saul's thinking to himself, why should I try to kill this guy? 
I'll just let our enemies kill him. But David is humble and he says, who am I that I should be a son-in-law of the king? I'm just a poor shepherd. And so David in his humility steps out of this relationship. But then Saul makes his third attempt on David's life. And this is really kind of strange. Saul learns that his youngest, his younger daughter, Michael, is in love with David. And, and so he offers David um, Michael. But he says, hey, David, um, since you're poor and since you wouldn't marry my other daughter because you couldn't afford the bride price, you said that you're someone that's humble and poor, then I'm going to say that the bride price for my younger daughter, Michael, is 100 Philistine foreskins. Getting a little weird here. And so Saul is making an attempt that his enemy once again would kill David. And he's saying, hey, you go out in the land and you kill 100 of our enemies. And you bring me proof that you have killed our enemy who's trying to come into our land. And what does, David, what does David do? The hand of the Lord is on David. Everything he does is successful. David comes back having killed 200 men. And Saul finds himself in a worse place than when he started. So now he has the influence of David, not just in his court, but now in his family. So David has become a part of the royal family. And then chapter 19 goes on and it tells of this fourth incident in which King Saul tries to kill David. And he informs, he even goes as far as to inform Jonathan, his son, that he desires to kill David. And Jonathan does something really remarkable here. Jonathan stands in the gap for his friend and he negotiates for David's life. Read along with me um, beginning in verse 4. I'm going to read through verse 7. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he's not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine. And the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David. And Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul and was in his presence as before. And there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing the lyre. And once again, we see that Saul makes an attempt on David's life. Maybe you can identify in some way with David. Not that someone um, is out to kill you, but maybe there's been a time in your life where you've had a boss at work who it seemed like just jerked you around. Maybe you found yourself under authority that you feel like can't be trusted. Days that you feel like are filled with uncertainty. That's where David finds himself. 
And David listens to Jonathan's assurance that his father has promised his safety. So, so he returns to Saul's court only to have another uh, spear hurled at him. And so now David escapes and he escapes to his own home. But the threat is even growing because now danger follows him to his home. And, and in chapter 19, um, it's fascinating to read. If you have time, you should go back and look at it. Uh, Saul is so out of his mind that he pursues David with his army, even to his own home. Now keep in mind, his own daughter, Michael, is there. And so now he's bringing his death wish into his daughter's home. And Michael knows that David must escape. And so he escapes through a window. They place an idol in the bed. They cover it. Uh, with a pillow of, of goat hair and they place David's clothes on it so that they think, the army thinks, the soldiers believe that David is sick and they come in and, and they attempt to take David back to Saul in his bed only to find out that it's not David and that David has escaped and Saul corners his daughter and it gets really twisted and he says, why are you choosing David over me? And Michael says, well, he made a threat on my life and so I had to let him get away and it's just a whole sordid affair. And chapter 19 ends with David escaping to Samuel. And he goes all the way to Ramah. And he escapes to the prophet Samuel where he feels like he, he might find safety. And then this whole sordid series of events happens where Saul sends out prophets. And it's, it seems to be somewhat confusing in chapter 19. Saul sends out men or messengers to go and bring David back. And every time that they come up against Samuel, it seems as if they prophesy. Now, the word prophesy in the Hebrew can mean a couple of things. It can mean that you share God's message of something that's foreboding or something that would take place in the future. It can also mean that you fall into a state of frenzy in which you're out of your mind. And that's what happens to these messengers. Saul sends them three different times, and three different times they're pushed back. They can't make it through Samuel. Samuel uses the word of the Lord, and, and David is protected. And finally, Saul goes up. And Saul, it gets really strange at this point. The scriptures give this summary in which Saul is thrown into this catatonic state, he lays naked. For like a full day. And he's out of his mind. And what you're seeing is a picture. That in the same way. If you go back and read chapters 9, 10 and 11. You're seeing the very same things that Saul did. In becoming king. As he was anointed. Going up to the same place. Prophesying. You're now seeing them unravel. You're seeing Saul become a lunatic. This unraveling of his life as the Spirit of God leaves him to his own devices, his own plans. And his life, his relationships, his power, his influence all begin to just disintegrate around him. It's like his kingdom is crumbling. Now I want you to notice something. Because if you looked at David's life, and some of you need to hear this. If you looked at David's life from the outside looking in, it seems as if the man who has ever, well, if you look at Saul, he's the man who has everything. He has everything except the Spirit of God. 
He has the kingdom. He seemingly has the power. He has armies and wealth. And it seems that he has everything except the Spirit of God. And his life is crumbling around him. Now, look at that in contrast to the man who literally has nothing except the Spirit of God. And he has, while in the midst of suffering, yes, running for his life, but look at the power, the influence, and the presence of the living God that he has on his life. We're going to see the difference. Chapter 20 is going to end in taking us to a piece of the story in which Everything in the royal court comes to a head. And this whole story about, is Saul for me? Is he against me? This bouncing back and forth of of David trying to give Saul another try. And Jonathan coming to him and saying, hey, dad's not really mad at you. (laughs) That last time in which he threw that spear at you, it's just a misunderstanding. You know, it really wasn't as bad as it seemed. Come back. Everything's better now. And while that seems kind of crazy, like how often does that happen? In our own lives? How often does that happen in issues in which we say it's mental health or it's drug addiction or we're covering up? Like, you say, how could David come back? How could his son, how, how could Saul's son Jonathan cover for him? How often does this happen in our own families in which we look back and we say, that was ridiculous that we would go through all of that? And David comes to this place in chapter 20 in which he says, we've got to figure something out. Like we can't keep, I can't keep bouncing back and forth and my life is at stake here. And so he and Jonathan come up with this elaborate plan. And chapter 20 is this long chapter in which it tells about this new moon festival. And they say, okay, we'll know Saul's true colors. David, you don't show up for the new moon festival. Let's see what Saul says if you're not here sitting around the royal table. And so David doesn't show up. And Saul inquires about him and thinks maybe he's unclean. Maybe he couldn't be here. And then the second day goes by. And once again, David doesn't show up. And he asks Jonathan. He knows who to ask. Saul's a smart leader. He goes to David's friend. He says, Jonathan, where's David? And David gives an excuse. He says he's gone up Bethlehem. He's gone to his hometown. He's gone there to sacrifice. He thought... You would be pleased with that. And Saul erupts. He erupts. And look at his response in chapter 20. Look at what he says to his own son in verses 30 through 34. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month. For he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. 
the phrase that Saul uses there, the shame of your mother's nakedness, it refers to someone's genitals. We'll just say that Saul is using very coarse language to attack his son. Not to mention picking up a spear and throwing it at him. And yes, when we look at all that's taken place in this story, it kind of ends with Jonathan and... and, um, David going out and these arrows being shot and them having these elaborate signs so that David would know, is dad really mad at me? Can I, is Saul, Saul really mad at me? Can I come back? Or, or if the arrow goes out and Jonathan says, no, it's further, it's beyond you, then David knows it's over and I have to leave. And we see all that, that that takes place, and the story ends. Look at verses 41 and 42, how the story ends. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from behind the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed and Jonathan went into the city. It's a long story. <clears throat> you may ask the question, why, why would you spend so much time walking through that story? You know, why not just grab a section of it and, and talk about relationships? Like, you, you could talk about relationships from this story. I mean, there's all kind of stuff that you could see here. You, can, you could talk about the sacrifices needed in relationships and loyalty and openness and encouragement. And while all that's true, and while there are some lessons that can be learned about friendship from this passage, I believe that even deeper... There's something taking place in this relationship with David and Jonathan. See, Jonathan has a decision to make in this story. And I don't want you to miss this. Will he choose to be loyal to his family and defend his throne and everything that he's been pursuing? Now think about that with me for just a minute. Put yourself in Jonathan's place. Ever since he's been a little boy, his plans, his dreams, his pursuits have all been wrapped around one thing. Building a kingdom. Following in his father's footsteps. Supporting his dad. Learning what is needed to follow, to be the king. But when David comes on the scene... Something remarkable, I believe something even miraculous takes place. Because Jonathan senses the presence of the Lord on David's life. And instantaneously, he surrenders everything he has. He gives up his hope and his dreams. He gives up his throne. And he gives his allegiance completely to David. If you think that's extreme, look back at verse 4 of chapter 18. Verse 4 says this, And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. His robe, his armor, 
his sword, his bow, his belt. This meant nothing short of recognizing David as the future king. It had already been prophesied in chapter 15. When Saul had sinned against God, Saul had grabbed the prophet Samuel's robe and it had ripped. And Samuel had prophesied and said, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. And he's referring to David. And then it would become super clear in chapter 23 and verse 17 in which Jonathan would say, everybody knows that you're going to be king. He says to David, do not fear for, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. In this story, Jonathan isn't just teaching us how to be a good friend. Jonathan is teaching us how to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Jonathan is showing us what it looks like to live in allegiance to the one who is king. To be willing at a moment's notice to surrender everything. The story of God, the Bible, is a story that we are called to enter into. We're part of this story. It's not just a story in the past, but that God has called us as His church to be part of this story. It's God's story, not our story. We oftentimes try to make it our story. It's not. It's God's story. It's for His glory, not for our own. What would it be like for you as you think about your place in this story, the story of God? What would it be like for you to lay down your robe, your armor, your sword, your bow, your belt? What would it be like for you to stand in the place of Jonathan? You say, I can't, I can't relate to that. I don't know what that means. What's your robe? What do you cover yourself in? What's your identity? What are those things that you hold dear to you? How about your career? What's your armor? What do you use to protect you? What are the things that you prop yourself up with? What are your weapons of war, your gifting, your strengths, your resources, what would it look like for you in your life to come under the allegiance of the Lord Jesus Christ and to say that all that I have is yours? That's what we hoped and dreamed of when we planted Mercy Hill Church, that we could see a spiritual family of people who are brought together who understand that God has given us a mission and that he's called each of us to be disciples, to use the resources and the giftings, our careers, everything that we have, and to lay them at Jesus' feet and to say, we're coming under your allegiance. All these things are yours. That we would be good missionaries 
Because good missionaries don't just get on planes and go across the world and pack their suitcases and give everything up. No, good missionaries stay right here in Memphis where missionaries are needed. And they say, all that I have is yours. And I think that sometimes that that's harder for us to wrap our minds around. You know, the big things sometimes in our life are easy. It's sometimes the little things like, I, I'm in a hurry today. You know, um, I don't have time to talk to that individual. Or when the Spirit prompts us, no, I don't have time for that interruption. Those are the moments in which we have to ask the question, am I going to respond to the Spirit and I'm going to see my life living under the allegiance of Jesus Christ? I wonder today, the Holy Spirit is at work. If you're a believer... If you're a follower of Jesus, God has given you His Spirit and His Spirit lives within you. I wonder how the Spirit is stirring your heart today. I wonder what that thing is that the Spirit is pointing you towards, calling you today to to surrender more of your life to King Jesus. To be willing to surrender your plans, your resources, your dreams, to lay them all at Jesus' feet, to come under His allegiance, To give him your life. Giving Jesus your life isn't just something that the church has created where a pastor preaches a sermon or or someone like a great order like Billy Graham draws the masses into a crusade, into a big arena and then says, come down, the buses await. Yes, we come to know Jesus at a moment in time. But we also come to trust Jesus with our lives and to say, all that we have is yours. And that requires a daily submission, a daily allegiance. The Lord began to um, put his finger on our hearts and to massage them in our family a few months ago and to say, will you come under my allegiance again Last November, we had an Orphan Sunday here, and you know I, I shared in part of that service, and Ben and Jessica shared, and Kristen and Michael and others, and God used that time to prompt our family's hearts, Katie and I individually, and then together, and we talked as a family, and we've been walking down this road of foster care since then. And we went through path classes this last winter, and we've done all this due diligence of fingerprinting and immunizations and many of you are shaking your heads because you're either doing foster care now or you've been down that path before and you know like all the paperwork and all the red tape that is involved and should be involved and we are waiting patiently right now there's a little 11 year old boy who doesn't have a home and doesn't have a family and his name is Mac and we are praying God willing that we might be able to foster him and foster to adopt. And we talked back and forth. And even last night, Katie and I, we went out and we were, we were talking. And Katie asked, like, is this crazy what we're doing? And I said, I don't know. It feels crazy sometimes. I don't think that's the right question. I wasn't, like, rebuking her. She knows this. I said, I think all we can say is, is it, is it God's calling? You know, because if it's God's calling, then it's probably crazy. 
Um, and at the same time, then, like, we have to move forward in it. And that's just one tiny little example of struggling with allegiance and struggling with obedience. And we know that there will be a lot of suffering that can come and will come in that. The question is this. Are we willing to see that we are part of a greater story? Do you see yourself as a disciple of Jesus? Like, are you following hard after him? Jesus left this mission with his disciples. He said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, as you go, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. Did you hear that? ESV gets that translation right. Teaching them to observe. King James said teaching them to obey. And so we put all our emphasis on trying to get other people to look more like Jesus. Do you hear what Jesus said? Teaching them to observe. How do people observe what it looks like to walk like Jesus? They see other people walking like Jesus. Do you see that Jesus' call on your life is not to walk down the aisle if you're like me in a Baptist church? And sign a little membership card with a short pencil. Jesus desires so much more than that. Yes, I'm grateful that Jesus met me as a six-year-old. And that he saved me. When I didn't even fully understand all that he had done for me. And I'm so thankful that Jesus has never left me. But Jesus has called us as his followers to know him more every day. And the way that people come to follow Jesus is not when we get better at our evangelism formulas, but when they see more of Jesus in our lives, they're able to observe more of Jesus. And the only way that can happen is when we offer our lives as living sacrifices. And just like Jonathan when we come under the allegiance of one who is a far better king than we could ever manage our own lives to be. You want to know what's fascinating about this story and what's so comforting to my heart? Here's what's ironic. In surrendering his earthly kingdom for Jonathan, in surrendering his earthly kingdom, in giving up the future of his house, Jonathan gains its future under the protection of David. Do you see if Jonathan would have said, I'm going to hold on, I'm going to be king, I'm going to make this work, it wouldn't have worked. But Jonathan comes under the protection of David, and because of that, his lineage is preserved. And in the same way, if you give your allegiance to God, he promises to preserve you. He promises because of Jesus. It's because of Jesus that we have a hope, an anchor for our soul that cannot be shaken. Praise be to God for his glorious grace, even his son, Jesus. As we come to his table today, we're reminded that he calls us to give him our allegiance. And the language that he used at the Last Supper was the language of marriage. The cup that he used and introduced, it came from the wedding feast. And it would have been a reminder 
That every time the disciples came and every time that they drank of the cup, and in the same way that we tear the bread and we're reminded of his body broken for us and we dip it in the juice and we eat it, we're reminded of his blood poured out for us, they would be reminded of a marriage commitment in which a bride and a groom would be saying, I am yours and you are mine. May it be so today as we worship even at his table.